Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Alex. And this is Connor. Welcome to the Sales Engineering Podcast. We're really excited to bring on Joe Casson, Director of Solution Engineering at Qualified.com. We're going to be talking about developing high-performing SEs from non-traditional backgrounds. Joe walks us through how he, one, looks for SEs from non-traditional backgrounds, and two, develops teammates with that raw potential into experienced SEs. This is such an important topic because there's a shortage of qualified SEs in the market today. And Joe essentially lays out a blueprint for managers who want to build a high-performing team of SEs from different backgrounds. After listening to this episode, if you haven't listened to any of our previous episodes, we recorded one on race, diversity, and allyship in the workplace. It's powerful and it's relevant to building up diverse teams, and we think you should give it a listen afterward. But back to Joe in developing high-performing SEs. Joe has approached developing his team with intentionality and thoughtfulness, and in a way that brings out the best in his teammates. We couldn't be more excited to have this conversation with him. So get ready to learn from an incredibly thoughtful SE leader. Welcome to the Edge of Sales Engineering. Hey, Joe. Connor and I are super excited to have you on the podcast today. Excited yeah, to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me. This is going to be awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to dive into this topic, Joe. It's going to be great. Yeah. So for some context, Joe was my manager at Optimizely. We worked together for a bit under a year before Joe moved on to build a sales engineering team from the ground up. Joe hired me as an SE when I had no direct sales engineering experience and was a huge part of developing me into an experienced sales engineer. With that being said, Joe, how about you start us off? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're about and about your path into the SE role. Sure. Um, so yeah, uh, Joe Casson. Uh, I um, have been in Silicon Valley for almost coming up on a decade now. And my path sort of, I'll sort of go around. It's, it started as a mobile engineer. Um, I started in the world of Android. And um, I've made my way, as Alex said, to a place called Qualified um, that focuses on conversational marketing. Um, think of being able to have uh, meaningful conversations with your top prospects on your website. So I'm build, as Alex said, I'm uh, building that from the ground up right now. And sort of just like what we're talking about today is I had somebody take a chance on me. Um, I didn't really deserve a job in the world of solution engineering. And in fact, the recruiter, when I first applied, said on the first phone call, hey, you don't have the prerequisite experience to be a solution engineer, but um, if you want, you can still interview for the technical support role. And so I was like, I don't really want to do that but it's a foot in the door. I'll continue down the path. Um, and so I ended up continuing the interview process, but told everyone along the way, they'd ask, how'd you get interested in Optimizely? Told them um, basically what I'm telling you right now. And uh, that I still had eyes on that role eventually. And when I finally got to my last interview, um, things had seemed to be going well so far. Uh, I was meeting with a person whom I still consider a mentor today, a guy named Greg Tate. And he heard me describe how I built the app and how we were thinking about the business value and, 
um, he looked at me and he just said, I think you could be an SE. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, well, you'd have to uh, re-interview. And I was like, that's fine. He goes, you wouldn't get this job if like you wouldn't get the technical support role. And I was like, that's fine. I don't really want that job. And uh, he goes, all right, well, yeah, we're, you'll start interviewing again next week. And so then after that, like long story short, um, ended up getting the job uh, and becoming an SE and loving it ever since. I, I think that sets kind of a, a really good foundation and introduction, Joe, on talking about, you know, whether you're an SE today as an individual contributor or manager or simply want to be an SE in the future. And we wanted just to start off and, and get a little bit more um, better understanding about how you went about hiring for potential. And so knowing what those good SE skills are to do the job, how do you go and translate that to qualities that you actually look for in a candidate? Yeah, it's something I, this is a topic that I spent a lot of time thinking about and at first was uh, lost in terms of where to start and ended up really loving the challenge of finding a good SE candidate. Um, it's a, it, I sort of just enjoy the process of seeing that potential um, and thinking that this is going to develop into something really valuable and high output, both for the, the firm and for the individual that they'll really love the field. Yeah. Um, so the characteristics, it's, it's funny because it's, there's a lot of characteristics that play into an SE. Like when you think of, when people think of the best SE on their team or that they've worked with, you definitely always think about people that can present really well, that are extremely knowledgeable about the topics that they're speaking on, um, that are collaborative. And those are all sort of those high level things that, yes, you want that to eventually be the output of who this individual is on your team. When, I'm, when I looked at the people that were considering the role, trying to move into the field, um, taking a step towards like, what are their motivations? Um, why are they trying to get into this field? And I think put it very tactically, the first place you would often look is at boot camps. Um, people fresh out of college, that was surprisingly less common. Um, and I, have some, I had some theories on as, uh, as to why, um, mostly because they've been thinking that they would end up be just engineers after college. Um, they just got their degree. Mm -hmm. um, and people in boot camps are usually much more aware because uh, the trainings that they have gone through mention them as roles. They uh, the people that are organizing those programs are a little bit more aware of the SaaS job market um, where solution engineers or sales engineers are relevant. Um, so it becomes much more common, but still, I think I actually became relatively disillusioned by the people coming from those boot camps, um, and at some point almost actively avoided them as, as talent sources because it was the same individual that had been training and just sank a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of sweat equity into trying to become an engineer. They were transferring fields and they wanted to go to a technical role. And they frankly weren't always very sure where they wanted to land, um, what role. They were just excited to get a job and they were looking for some sort of direction. Mm. So it was getting to that what are you motivated by like what is what is the thing that you're trying to get to that was a big topic of conversation for anybody but particularly people coming from um, completely different fields um, and i actually found that it was 
if I did have a good conversation with those individuals, it was always people that were, um, and this did happen on many occasions. I don't want to discount everybody coming from boot camp because I had many, many good candidates come from there. It's just that there's a lot of people going through boot camps. But the one, the conversations that were really strong um, were people that had true, genuine interest in their projects that they had built and had continued to work on projects after their program ended. If you had just looked at like their catalog of what they built in their program, great, you might actually know the mean stack or um, some other framework and how to build it, but you didn't necessarily showcase that you were interested beyond that, the curiosity to go and like flesh out a new area that showed one, independent learning capabilities, and two, just like the fact that you are going to be uh, a good employee for longer than 12 months, um, right. ideally 18 to 24, as any manager will try to invest that time. But that's really like the beginning framework of like, what are you interested in? Then we can go into a few other areas. Um, in, in terms of those motivations, I'm curious, um, it sounds like from your experience, having people who are at least aware of the role in some capacity was helpful since that was in, in like the realm of possibilities of career paths for them to go down. Um, would, you, would you say that's true? I, I guess just double clicking a little bit more into those motivations I'm curious about. Yes, I think understanding the role uh, was a question that I would ask. What, would, what, what do you think an SE does? Um, what, what do you think the split is on your day-to-day? -day? Explain, to, explain to me your understanding of the role. And it sounds really silly. Like it, or it could sound really silly to people that are already in SE. Sure. But getting a person who is newer to the field to really understand that mm, you're not going to be coding for six hours a day. Um, in fact, you might be coding not at all in some SE roles. You might be coding for a couple of hours, depending on the project. Um, it really depends on the product that you're supporting, but also um, the breakdown and the needs of the team at the time. Um, and really the phase of the company. Uh, like if you're at a place where it's a hundred people, you're probably going to be building a lot of things that are using a lot of different skill sets. So getting them to understand that motivation on like what they want the role to be for them, where do they want to take their skill set, um, that really helps almost answer and provide some coaching in that moment of like, hey, maybe this role is right for you. And this is actually, and this actually happened on a couple of occasions where I talked to someone on uh, and ended up hiring this person, um, but clearly was interested in the role, but didn't know what the next, next step would be. What's the next, next job? Um, and he ended up actually becoming a solutions architect uh, and then went on to be a PM. Um, wow. And so, that's a path that you can go down and it's a path you can develop as a solution engineer. And that doesn't scare me as a manager, but I have to know why. So I know what I'm signing up for. And so that way I can help either uh, point you in a different direction or to help you develop those skills. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Um, so in terms of hiring and looking for those good potential candidates, that, that mm -hmm. definitely makes sense. How about from the perspective that uh, have you ever like gone and, and made a bad hire or there was a candidate that you thought really had that potential or that motivation, but uh, the potential was never actualized? Sure. Um, yeah, I, uh, I have made bad hires. Um, I have, I think anybody that says they haven't uh, uh, is either uh, unaware or uh, kidding themselves. Hiring um, is difficult. It's, it's not easy. Is. It's very hard. Um, and I think, uh, I think the, the thing was, 
when I looked at some of the other core characteristics, so we talked about motivations, understanding the role. Um, the other things you obviously look for is like uh, capabilities, relevant skill set, um, IQ, ability to execute, like all those things are all key characteristics. But um, one of the ones that ended up, I did not uh, understand at the time, um, was kind of a combination of self-reflection and uh, collaboration. And I think one of the things that made people like Alex on this podcast really successful is the ability to understand um, what you do well and what you need to work on, what your coworkers do well and what you, they need to work on, how you can be uh, diplomatic in how you uh, communicate what you need and, um, and what you are getting and what you need to continue to see um, out of them, where they really excelled in those meetings. That is a part of the SE job that I think often goes unstated, but really defines success for people within the role is, and that's one of my, that was one of the earliest things that I even saw, sorry to keep picking on you, Alex, but I saw in like Alex's interview was at like extreme ownership and self-reflection throughout the entire process of trying to think really delicately and diligently um, of uh, what he was doing and how he could, how he could do better. So, and that's what made Alex fun to work with, not for just for me, but whenever I heard feedback. Um, about people like Alex and Alex in particular. So it's the bad, hi the bad hires that I've made um, and that I'm thinking about have really come down to, can you take feedback? Are you aware of what you're doing? Are you motivated to continue to get better? Um, humble enough to do it um, and uh, disciplined enough to take action on it. I think mm. that that sort of self-reflection, self-awareness, and like really plays into the ability to be successful on a team and in a company. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely resonate a lot with that. And I guess in that interview context or setting, when you only have 30, 45 minutes with a candidate, how do you go and pull out and, and actually find out some of those qualities? Um, uh, it's a good question. One we iterated on quite a bit. Um, one I think is you have to get people involved. It can't just be your team. It can't just be SEs that get involved because I think as everybody listening to this probably realizes the SE team, as much as we're a team, you actually end up working mostly with the account executives um, as your primary strategic partners. So you have to pull those people into the job interview and you have to look for them to identify the attributes that they're going to be a good colleague. Um, mm -hmm. You also, I mean, when, when it comes to the self-reflection, we did presentations. That's a big part. That was a big part of the job interview process at Optimizely. And honestly, most of the presentations were pretty bad when they were delivered. Um, uh, uh, it was so it bad. Was, it was, yeah. I cringe thinking about my presentation. <laughs> it's, and uh, you were not great, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was, <laughs> Uh, but the thing, honestly, that um, I loved when candidates would, uh, and turned several interviews completely around, was when the feedback, the self-reflection was on point. If you were able to pick out what you did in the moment and immediately turn around and be like, God, I wish I did this better. I did this really well. I'm proud of how I did this. Because it's not all bad. You have to be able to say like, I think I've, I can build on this. This is already really good. But that was a part in the presentation, the final round presentation, 
they could save a really bad presentation by being able to appropriately uh, realize what they would do better next time. Wow, awesome. Switching gears from this hiring part, let's talk about developing high-performing SEs. So to start this topic off, let's start by defining what high-performing means just to get a baseline understanding. Sure. Um, High performance, I think this is maybe one of the most debated topics in solution engineering. I mean, at every organization, they're trying to say, how do you measure that someone is doing well on your team? Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, probably probably different everywhere, slightly different. Exactly. The number of frameworks I've seen to try and make this, of course, we're all like engineering minded and so we're trying to come up like, well, this is how you definitively say in a mathematical way that this person is a top performer. And you're sort of, uh, you're justifying statistics. I think there's a lot that you can get from um, uh, understanding uh, who a person is and how they're executing the effort they're putting in. There's a lot of ways you can, you can categorize it. The way I always defined it was I thought about it in two different buckets. Um, there, there are execution high performers and there are influence high performers. Um, and execution high performers, these are the people where you give them a task, you put them in any scenario, you can put them pretty much with anybody, and they're going to be able to deliver. They're going to be able to have a high quality meeting with that prospect. They'll do all the research. Um, they'll drive towards next steps. Um, they'll be able to inform the rest of the team or the, fill in their forecast reports. Um, Alex is having PTSD with the idea of forecasting right now, what I've asked him to do. Um, but that sort of execution mindset is someone you can just rely on um, and know is going to do a good job. Uh, The influence high performers are people that I think um, are closer to the authors of being able to see weak spots inside of the process, inside of the way that we're, uh, we're executing as a team and saying, hey, if we actually did this earlier or if we used um, a different workflow right here, um, this could be better. Um, And even I think one of my, one of the things I saw with people was when they come up with new training programs. How do we take our sales team, the people we're working with to the next level um, and try to build influence that way of like, uh, there's a process, there are things that exist, there's an architecture in place, but I think if we push onto this or lean in this direction, it's going to take us to the next level. Not, and the reason I break those two things out is because I think both have their place. And sometimes you can have the magical unicorn that is both, um, understands the process, wants influence, and also can execute on all that. The, the thing that I think um, is hard about having those is that um, a person who's an influencer, if they're, too, if they're too driven on like trying to find the optimal process, then they get disorganized and they don't have very like a regular pattern that they can follow and identify characteristics that are or are not working. Um, and if the people are too execution minded, then they're not looking for those. They'll take the existing process and just continue to run it even though there's better paths. So you need a little bit of both and you might find those in different areas, but the notion that you're gonna have everybody that's both is foolhardy. So you really, uh, you really need to think of, I think in those two different brackets to in order to build a, a healthy team. Wow, yeah, I've never heard performance put that way. I guess I'd, I'd throw in one, one metric. Usually SEs, we're, for pre-sales, we're connected to revenue. There mm-hmm. has to be some kind of revenue metric as well that at the end of the day, we can, we can point to. 
Yes. Um, so you're saying, what do I think about revenue? No, uh, no, no, revenue. I, I think that's another, that's another metric that I, I guess I don't know where that boiled into that. I actually, yes, I think revenue is important, but only as an indirect indicator. I, I like correlation does not equal causation. I, it, you can have somebody who's just happened to be attached to the biggest deals. I can think of, I can think of instances, not just from my own experience in my own companies, but teams across where we'd talk to different reps from different orgs and say that this person, man, they stink and they, they closed the biggest deal. That it, uh, it can matter. And honestly, the company will probably like those, the high performers will find their way to the biggest deals because the companies usually identify them as high performers from other characteristics on smaller scale and then push them into scenarios where they trust them. So yes, the heavy hitters usually get the biggest at bats. That makes sense. Um, is it the best indicator that this person closed this many deals? I don't think so. And honestly, close rate, unless you're dealing with a ton of scale, can honestly be misleading too. Um, I would much, like when I get down to the actual like tactical way to review execution performance and influencing performance is um, getting the feedback from coworkers, from colleagues. Are they delivering on the objectives? Um, you, have, like, you have to hear what their colleagues are saying, what your colleagues are saying. Um, and sitting in and shadowing. I think that's mm -hmm. gonna be the other way, like you have to, as a manager, you have to put in the sweat, sweat equity there to learn um, if they're doing a good job. So it's, yes, revenue is a component. I think it definitely is a helpful indicator that people want to trust them with big deals, but I, is for me, was it the, the leading indicator? Not by any stretch. Yeah. And so uh, another unique thing about being a sales engineer is such incredibly long feedback cycles. It's mm -hmm. usually a couple months of just training and onboarding before you get in front of a customer. Then deal cycles can, can be anywhere from a month to six months, or if you're going into enterprise, you know, a year or sometimes even a few years, you have these really long feedback cycles how do you start to, to measure success? What signals do you look for as precursors or uh, to know that we're working towards this ideal state of getting them to be um, an experienced SE that can mm -hmm. execute? Um, it's, man, the, the feedback cycles are long, especially in the beginning. Like uh, looking back and I would put uh, individuals through six to eight week trainings before they could sometimes get on the phone. And that's a long time before you know that you're ready. It's a big investment as well that the company has to make in an individual. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's investment well-paid, like the ROI is high on those things. But um, and I, this is, uh, it's, an, it's a, not a fun answer, but man, you really have to put in the effort. And I mentioned it a couple of times already, but if you're not shadowing that individual, particularly with somebody who has not been in the field before, or this is a new, they're new to the world of SE, if you're not close to their development and shadowing all of their calls, and I like, I'll get into that in just a second, then you're gonna be losing, you're gonna lose them because they're gonna, they're gonna uh, possibly make a mistake, not know that they've made a mistake, get some bad feedback from uh, other reps, other reps won't wanna work for them, and then it spirals very, very quickly. And I think in the end, SE's reputations within organizations are invaluable. Do people want to work with you um, in a structure where they can have a uh, they have a say in the ability to work with you? Um, and so when I when I say like 
shadowing them. I actually, I like process as you can, as you can imagine. Uh, and uh, I like frameworks and I like communicating it. So what I ended up doing was setting up a three month um, plan of this is my, this is the percentage of your meetings that I'm going to be shadowing. Um, this is the structure that we're going to have after your meetings because, and like how many meetings that you'll be able to take within this period of time. And so when you get to three, six months in, we'll have an understanding between me and that developing SE that's, um, we're going to have a 15 minute debrief before every single, after every single one. Um, when we start to prepare for those meetings, uh, we'll have a 10 minute pre-slink with you and the account executive things like that. And everybody has to build it for their own right process and for their own right organization. But that put me and them on the same page that it's mutually accepted feedback to be able to say that we're going to be doing this on a regular cadence. We're going to be acknowledging that there are things that will change and that you'll need to change. Getting them in that mindset make them much more usually motivated to actually do something and improve um, throughout that cycle. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. I want to dive a little bit deeper into uh, those uh, follow-up sessions. And it sounds like you set a very clear expectation on what that cadence was for uh, feedback and how that was going to be delivered. Mm -hmm. How do you go about providing feedback for candidates to, or, or people who are on your team to help them grow? Oh man, uh, how many workshops are you ready to attend to learn how to deliver feedback? Silicon Valley seems to have one every other week. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a lot of ways. I mean, there's, uh, and I've heard lots of different frameworks. Uh, people think that you should do the compliment sandwich. That's fallen out of fad. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, you have to ask for their acceptance to deliver feedback. Um, I, I think, honestly, there's... Uh, I like to establish a relationship upfront that it's, um, I'm going to deliver feedback to you. Um, I'm not gonna, if I'm gonna have the EQ, hopefully, to be able to like know when it's not the right time to give you feedback. Um, like you're having a terrible day, uh, you just got into a bicycle accident on the way to work. I'm not gonna tell you that your, your last meeting sucked. Um, but I do think that there's, um, one of the values that I really pulled from a book I read early in my management career tenure uh, was uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Uh, another thing that's very uh, of the moment right now in like the management of uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley and the tech community. But care, all you, you have to care. Um, and you, the notion of radical candor, probably butcher this, sorry, Kim, um, <laughs> is, uh, to be honest, but to care truly about that person's development. If you are giving them feedback and say something that's harsh, if you come from a place that is uh, a, a way to give them, a, get better development, to have positive growth, to make them a better whatever, person, employee, um, something else, then that's gonna be received much differently than if you're just like, hey, um, I don't have time for this, but that really sucks. Figure it out, like do it better. That might work for some people. I don't think it works right now. Uh, maybe we're soft millennials, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I do think that if you come from a place of, uh, hey, I'm going to tell you this. Um, this is only because I think that there's ways to do it, uh, get better. Yes. And then it's also your job as a manager to realize that like, what are the things that, uh, how much cognitive load can you put on them? Like, 
you don't I, like when you start a person, especially raw, given the topic we're talking about today is raw talent. You don't just tell them all the things that they did wrong because they wouldn't know where to start. You try to pick the one that they're going to be able to take action on and then move it to the, move the ball forward a few yards. Right. Um, that makes it much more achievable. It feels satisfying uh, and sets you up later to be able to deliver bigger, harsher feedback or really positive feedback and have it mean, mean a lot more. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and just talking with you about this, like I do get that sense and that feeling that you specifically come from this place of caring and wanting people to do better and wanting them to do good and succeed and, and be successful. So I, I love that perspective. Um, Alex and I, as we were prepping for this conversation, we were, we were talking a little bit about um, just so, some of your working style. And, and he mentioned that you do uh, somewhat of an SE boot camp. And I know you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the conversation, this, this six to eight weeks investment into individuals. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that was and how you structured it and what it consisted of? Sure. Um, yeah, the, 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 the first six to eight weeks are a lot of learning. You basically go back to school. Um, it almost feels academic. Um, mm -hmm. Again, Alex is crying. You can't hear this over the audio because he's <laughs> muted. Um, it, my personal belief is that you have to have a certification program. Um, for individuals to be able to get on the phone. It makes, it puts everyone around the org, both the individual that is getting certified and the people that they're working with, that there is a baseline that has been passed in terms of quality. Um, and you don't lower the bar in order to like, hey, we just need them on the phone. You need to make sure that your, the people you're putting to represent your firm are, um, are ready. And it's going to make the people that they work with happy. It's also going to make that individual feel like they're not completely underwater when they get on that call for the first time and get an objection. Not every right. call goes without questions that they don't know how to handle, um, particularly with very technical products. Um, and actually, even with the products that aren't as technical, quote unquote, as technical. Um, so driving towards that is the goal. Then it's just working backwards. So how do you build the framework of uh, number of calls that you shadow per week? Um, do you have a knowledge base? All right, you're gonna basically read that front to back. Um, start with the big topics first and then work your way into the minutia. Um, add in a mentor uh, so that way they have a person that isn't their boss uh, to be able to ask questions to. Um, that's a very valuable outlet, not just for um, not looking stupid in front of your boss, but isn't even frustrations about what's going on in the job and talking about like day-to-day -day life and. Um, makes them feel ready to be a part of the team. Yeah. And um, then working that forward into, okay, how do we do dry runs? Um, and how do we make sure that the right people, just like in the interview process, are included in those dry runs and then the final sign off? Love it. Yeah. And that, uh, that other aspect of this, this boot camp or, or onboarding was this formal stamp of approval or certification process, too, which I, I really liked that, that helps not only build confidence in the team, but also the individual to know, okay, like my peers who I've, I've just gone through this like tough onboarding process with and put, put through the ringer, they think I'm ready for this. So mm -hmm. I, I imagine that's a good confidence boost as well for, for not only the team, but the individuals too. Yeah, uh, it's, it gets you um, almost just as important as the SE manager buying into their development. It gets the sales manager 
to be bought in on this person is ready and I'm ready to go to bat for them as they get into meetings and I shadow and um, uh, get them to develop into one of the top performers. Yeah. And just to clarify, the sales managers and, and AEs were in those dry run presentations oh, as yeah. well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. And to round out just the, this main core episode topic, we talked a lot about getting people from that raw potential and actually becoming efficient engineers in their day-to-day work. Once you actually get team members to that level of proficiency, how do you go about continuing to support their growth and development? Um, I mean, you might be catching on to a trend here, but I actually, we would build a plan. Um, it was a career development plan. Um, this was another framework to try and sort of come to a mutual understanding of where have they come from, where do they get inspiration and motivation from, and where do they want to go? Um, how are we going to take that? What's the action plan? Um, more, some of it was almost uh, uh, therapeutic, describing like how they grew up, where they grew up, what was their job, major setbacks, periods of growth. Alex remembers this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and you, but you get to learn as a manager, again, it's like I learn about who this person is on my team. So um, I know what's going to work and hopefully motivate them. Um, then like uh, one of the people that eventually moved off of my team, I did this exercise with him and we realized that he didn't want to be an SE anymore. Like it was, uh, it was, I, he probably had it in his own mind. I'm pretty sure he did that. He didn't want to be an SE anymore, but he doesn't know how to break it to me. Mm-hmm. So, but we use this as like a framework for how are we going to get you to that next role? Um, and ended up becoming a solutions architect on the team and it uh, shaped his career to where he is today. So this sort of framework allowed me to sort of pick apart their background um, and then use that uh, to say like, are we executing on this? And make sure that they felt that their manager was invested in hearing um, what they needed. Yeah, Joe, thanks a bunch for for sharing all of these insights. There was a part of me that that felt, feels lucky listening to this now on the other side and having gone through this, like part of it feels like home and, you know, part <laughs> of it, I wouldn't say it made me cringe, but it definitely, I was like, Oh, yep. Remember going through the ringer there. Uh-huh. <laughs> I rem- uh, a very specific moment. I-, I remember for a certification pitch pitching to you and-, and you started pointing out things in the product, new little features. And I had no idea how to talk about it. And then afterwards, I was like, so what do those things do? And you was like, I don't know. I was seeing if you knew. <laughs> it was like a very, it was a very, uh, it was a, a funny moment that stands out to me. I really remember. You got to know what you don't know, Alex. And yeah. then at least you can, you can start yeah. to learn about it. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, moving on to this next section of the episode, we want to move into our rapid fire questions. Just a couple questions that we ask to every guest. What is a book that has greatly influenced your professional or personal life? Um, well, I mentioned one, uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. That was definitely a big impact of just how I communicated. Um, a more recent one was uh, a book by a uh, former U.S. Navy SEAL called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willick. And, um, Extreme Ownership, Jocko. Yeah. Do you know Jocko? We know Jocko. Oh, we know, know Jocko, Jocko well. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jocko is a wild man. He is a machine. But, <laughs> and his books are a little, at some points, a little grisly. And you're like, I don't know if that applies to the corporate world. 
but the core thesis was really I took to heart where it was um, yes there are lots of factors that will impact whether something goes well or goes poorly but you have to take ownership over when things uh, whatever way they go and uh, being able to allocate uh, the um, the congratulations and the celebrations onto the people that helped you drive, drive you there. But if things fail, you have to be prepared to take ownership over that. And uh, like, what are the things that led to that conclusion? And then build on that. Um, you're the only person that's going to be in charge of your own life. No, at the end of the day, your mom might love you and she might be the only person that's really invested there. But um, that's, you are the person that you're going to have to answer to look in the mirror. Yeah. Um, and, uh, one other one that I'd recommend for any managers thinking about and moving into this space is High Output Management by Andy Grove. Um, that was much, got me much more in the mindset for thinking about like the firm, how to build towards like keeping the, my team as high functioning, um, building my meetings into a bit like a way that's high functioning um, and sort of just thinking more at a corporate level. Um, just put some, some good building blocks in place. So I check those out. Yeah. That, that book, Ownership by Jocko, has made it to the top of my list. He's, uh, you're the second guest to recommend that book and oh, how really? it's influenced their life. Yes. Wow. So it's, it's, you know, once it's, okay, that's a good book. It's on the list. Second time, it's moving to the top of the list. It's, a, it's also, you, if you, I did the audio book, sorry, listened to the book, um, hearing, I think it's Jocko that does the audio book. And man, it's a trip this guy talking about like influencing like the CTO and he's like, you got to fire this guy. You got to take the three bars. They're like, it's, it's a, like a Silicon Valley tech company that he's like meeting with and talking about like the battle of Ramadi. And it's like, I'm sure it's like sort of like a squirrely engineering leader. That's like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, you'll have to, you'll have to, I, if you listen to it, it's I, you're in for a treat. Really? Okay. Yeah. That's great. It's good yeah. to know. Yeah. So next question, what is the worst professional advice you've ever been given? Um, well, I mean, everybody's been given bad advice. I think probably I, I had a kind of thinking about this question. It's kind of hard to come up with examples because you sort of try to discount those. I think one of the collective things though, is um, that just watching and the world we live in now with LinkedIn is title chasing. Like, it's yeah. that is it's watching people that I can see either move around to different jobs um, to get different titles, to become uh, directors or VPs or SVPs of, um, or even just like a higher level, like a software engineer too. Like I, you want to do that because you're told that you, you, you're intrinsically told that that is what's valuable. And that is not the reason you should be making a decision. It should not, it is not the thing that's on paper that matters. Um, that is a, honestly a recipe, in my opinion, a recipe for failure and maybe even down the line being uncovered as a fraud that you don't really know what you're doing because you've been chasing titles for so long, bouncing around and from place to place just to hopefully look better on paper um, without really investing and in, like learning the core attributes. And hey, like maybe I'm just telling myself that because that's what I've done. Uh, but I also learned the hard way too of like trying to chase that title is um, not where you actually develop the most. Um, and where I am today, 
sure my title says director, but that's, if you were to ask me what I actually do, it's, it's not really director. I just sort of do everything. We're at a stage of the company where you have to, and I'm learning a ton and I wouldn't be, I would be fine right now with no title at all. Um, and I, I know that sounds a little cheesy, but it's, uh, having that mentality just makes you, I think more willing or more capable of, uh, becoming a better person and employee in the future. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's great. That's, been, that's a great answer to the worst professional advice. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, yeah, it, it's hard. It's a hard thing because like you want to do it, but, uh, and if you're, I don't know, when you tell your mom, you got a promotion, it's pretty tight. Or you tell your girlfriend, your family, you just got a new job, <laughs> yeah. you got a new yeah. title. Yeah, you're speaking to that part of we're all being told uh, intrinsically and by the world around us that we should be chasing these titles. And, yeah, you know, it's not um, necessarily and for success. You got to be willing to take those risks. You've got to be saying like, hey, maybe I'm not quite ready for that VP of sales title. But you have to be honest with yourself. Like, why are you moving to it? Do you feel like you have the ingredients for success? And then it becomes much less about the title mm -hmm. and much more about um, capable, the ability to be set up for success. Yeah. Yeah. So flipping that question on its head, what's the best professional advice you've ever been given? Um, this, this one is actually a lot easier. I feel like I've had a lot of good advice throughout my career because I have um, a few people that I talk to regularly about what I, my jobs and the way my career is growing. Um, they've taken an interest in me. But I think the core one through each of those said very appropriately, I think, um, or most distinctly, uh, potentially by uh, one of the leaders at Slack, a guy named Zach Lorick. Um, he said a phrase of do good work. Um, and it was those three words that really spoke to me about the way you approach your job, the way you approach um, things outside of your job, um, the way you approach SE work. Uh, if you're focused on doing good work, and that's, that is your principal interest, then who gets the credit? Not that important. Um, who gets the blame? Not that important. You're probably not even really going to have to worry about those because the good work will speak for itself. If you're putting in the effort, if you're focused on creating a product or a, uh, uh, an output that you're proud of, that you have put effort into, then the results, the score will take care of itself. Um, and you'll have something that you'll, uh, that will either engage your customers that will, uh, win over teammates to want to work with you or, um, I don't know, uh, set you up well, uh, in your personal life to be, uh, good in whatever ways you, you strive for there. But those three words, uh, have definitely become something that I've taken with me throughout each of my jobs. And I look, I look for other people that whether or not they know it embody those, that same mentality. Wow. Joe, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your perspective. I got to say like, this has been an extremely enlightening conversation that, I've personally learned a lot. I know uh, every, anyone who's listening will will definitely learn a lot from just the the way that you approach and think very very consciously about your team, developing others and, and those around you. Um, in closing, are are there any other remark or closing remarks that we haven't talked about that you'd potentially like to? Uh, you guys have done a pretty good job, I think, with the the structure of these questions. Um, I think. If there's 
if there are people considering, my closing remarks would probably be like, where to, where to start? Um, I've had people approach me and ask like, okay, how do I actually get started or become an SE? Um, and I, th I think it's, uh, it's something that really you have to find your own path, but you have to start by creating. Um, you have to find a, a role, an like an architecture, a framework, a product set, something where you find interest in creating. And then all the things that we've talked about thus far of like being naturally curious, um, being able to have a conversation about uh, technical topics um, with authority, being able to learn and collaborate well with others, that will come from building your own where you'll uncover what do you and do you not know, what do you get motivated by, um, and you'll have something to show at the end of the day. Um, so you can listen to podcasts, and this one I hopefully is a helpful one to, to give you an idea of what managers look for and managers will find it valuable. Maybe I'll trick them into uh, hiring some people. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you, I think if, you get, if you're trying to get started, um, do the research, put in the effort. Nothing's, nothing's going to speak like a project that you've created yourself and um, the way that you, you'll be enthusiastic about it. Wow, what an incredible conversation that was with Joe. I truly feel grateful to have had the chance to work with him and be the beneficiary of learning from him. A quick reminder, if you haven't listened to any previous episodes, we recorded one on race, diversity, and allyship in the workplace. It's powerful and relevant to building diverse teams, and we think you should give it a listen after this. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we hope this helps you learn and grow in your career as an SE and in your professional life. If you found this conversation as insightful as we did, please share this podcast with a teammate or your team and let us know what you think by subscribing and rating wherever you listen. Finally, if there are any topics you'd like to hear about or speakers you think would be great for the podcast, please use the email alias in the show notes or reach out to us. See you next time on the Edge of Sales Engineering.